0: This CBF podcast conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theology education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next steps in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash m-a-t-m degree that's fuller.edu backslash m-a-t-m degree
1: since 2016 cbf has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter these stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the united states and the world We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support.
0: This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. Hey podcast listeners, this is your host, Andy Hale. We are thrilled to bring you another year of CBF's podcast with a cavalcade of brilliant guests such as Father Tom Reese, Washington Post Sarah Pulliam Bailey, Mark Charles, Soong Chien Ra, and Matthew Paul Turner. And that's just skimming the surface of the first few months. As you know, last fall, we launched the Podcast Listener Support Project. This is an opportunity for you to connect closer with the podcast and premier guest, By becoming a podcast supporter, you can join me on an interview with premier guests such as Walter Brugerman, Sarah Bessie, and Brian McLaren. So check out cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Darius Daniels. He's the founding and lead pastor of Change Church in New Jersey. Uh, Darius is also the author of a new book, Relational Intelligence. Darius, thank you for joining the conversation.
2: I'm excited to be here. Thank you for making time for me today. I think um, I hope I mean I'm anticipating we're going to have a blast together.
0: Good. Well, before we get to the book, uh, let's learn a little bit more about you. You you studied in Jackson, Mississippi, in Princeton, New Jersey, in Pasadena, California. So I'm guessing you like to travel.
2: <laughs> not really. I think um, I, I do travel frequently. You know, it was just I feel like not over spiritualizing it, but I feel like just kind of the nature of uh, uh, my travels was just a consequence of um, God's calling and the opportunities that presented themselves, you know? um, So I'm born and raised in Mississippi. And so I went to college in Jackson, but it was only an hour and a half away from where I was raised. So that wasn't too far. And when I was trying to make decisions regarding seminary, I was actually um, trying to stay actually in the South. So I looked at a place or two in Dallas, um looked at a place in nashville i was actually looking at vanderbilt um but i can't remember exactly what it was but i think i don't know they may have given me like a 75 percent scholarship or something like that anyway i couldn't afford the rest it was no way no way i was going to go into debt knowing i was going into ministry (laughs) so that was not that was not and yeah the door just kind of opened at princeton and um and then after that, I really wanted to lean into some some leadership development and I wanted to go to a school that I felt like would equip me for that. And that's how I ended up at, at Fuller. So it was, it's weird. You would think I like to travel a lot, but I do, but I don't.
0: Well, it's also fascinating to hear, you know, Vanderbilt, you know, students graduating with de- debt from their divinity school, but not at Princeton. You know, I think of Princeton, that sounds like really expensive.
2: Yeah, it uh, it it is, but I was able to go for free. So it worked out for me a little better. It yeah. worked out a little little better for me. You know, the issue was so my father's a pastor, but um I had absolutely no pastoral as- aspirations or ministry aspirations at all. I mean, I wanted to be a committed Christian. Uh I wanted to serve the church in some way. But it was always my intention all the way throughout undergrad to go to law school. And that's what, that was the track I was on when I was in college. And about 19 years old is when I sent the call to ministry and uh, knew I wanted to live out that call in a certain season of my life, but not immediately. So my plan was still to go to law school and then practice law um, for a period of time and then venture out of law into ministry. But as time progressed in undergrad i really started feeling the leading of god and this tug and this call to use the entirety of my life to serve the church now there are a number of different reasons i had hesitancy about that and um some of them were just like really really practical i grew up in a very very rural area uh last census was like 630 people killed Michael, Mississippi, so 630 people, and um, one stop, no stop lights, one police officer, one doctor, it's, it's it was just a real, and so I saw my father work, he was bivocational, struggled, and uh, he always wanted me to put, put myself in a position where my family didn't have to endure some of the things that we did, and so that was part of my reservation for it and so I didn't start applying to seminaries until the second semester of my senior year. That's how long it took me and that was part of the reason that um, some of the options I think some of the doors closed for me because applying that late most people are getting acceptance letters by that time I was just applying and uh, that was one of the issues with Vanderbilt they had given out most of their scholarship money and um, for that year and they offered me what they had available, but it just kind of worked out by God's grace and providence that the door opened for Princeton and because that was the one that opened and it was free. That's the one I went to.
0: Hmm. Well, New Jersey worked out for you as well because you ended up starting a church there. You're the founding pastor of Change Church. So tell us the story of uh, your calling to start a new
2: church. Yeah, that's weird because (laughs) I don't know how often a person will hear a story um, that, basically, in a nutshell, goes like: I went to Princeton Seminary, and I got a passion to start a church at Princeton. <laughs> but that is exactly what happened with me, and uh, I was there, and I, I was really, you know, adjusting to the to the cultural, the the cult, the religious climate there was much different than my experience in Mississippi. It was much more, there was much more religious diversity in the city than i would ever seen. And a large portion, a large portion of that area just has no religious affiliation whatsoever. So it was weird because I almost felt like a missionary in in the same, even though I was in the same country. And while I was at seminary, I, I just so happened to take this class by this guy named Darryl Guter. And he was this was in the early 2000s so he was talking about to me missional theology before missional theology got confusing and he gave language to just some of the things that i felt in my heart and i proceeded to take everything he was teaching during my entire time in seminary i taught i took and it burst it just birthed a burden in my heart to plant That kind of church, Um, a church that was incarnational in its expression, Um, not just doing the ministry of Jesus, but doing it the way that he did it, putting flesh on not just the gospel, but on the way you do church, looking at what's going on culturally and then what's the best way to put a gospel community in the midst of this. And so I was kind of inspired to do that by, by his classes, and I think I came out of... Princeton in 04 and then 05, we planted the church.
0: Uh, what, what makes you so effective in connecting with people? I mean, you mentioned uh, right before we started to record that um, you're not in Princeton today. You're not in New Jersey today. You're actually in Florida because you all have opened another campus. So, you know, you've, you've had um, some pretty remarkable success. So what makes you so effective in connecting with people?
2: um you know i'm not sure i I know when people ask questions like this what we really want we know what god has done and what people really want to know is like what you've done and so i get that i i really don't know the answer to that question though one of the things that i do know is really important to me is this and i think i learned this from darrell gutter is to be a student of them it is, so my, no matter what seat I sit in in terms of pastoral responsibility, I never want to lead the posture of a student. Um, so for me, that helps me not just in leadership, it also helps me in communication. It helps me in my preaching. So I have a philosophy right now that I am always in some way, um, one, one leader puts it this way, do for some what you wish you could do for all. I am always in some way going to have some interaction with, um, meaning whether it's counseling or mentoring conversations or whatever, with people who are part of our congregations. Because that keeps my finger on the pulse of what is happening, not just in the life of our staff and leaders, but what's happening in the life of the people that we serve. And it informs my preaching in ways I cannot even articulate. It is probably besides what God may burn my heart with. It is probably the single greatest contributor to what I'm preaching, because I see and I'm able to I'm able to have a viewpoint and a vantage point into what's happening in the lives of the people that I serve because of because of conversations with them. So if there's if there's something I can point to to answer your question, that would probably be. Um, so far, at least our greatest asset, it is a commitment not just to be a teacher but to never leave the posture of a student uh, because it teaches me so so much about how to lead and how to serve them in terms of the spiritual diet we 're cooking up.
0: Worship is obviously an integral part of what we do as as a church so I know this might seem like a weird question, but what does a successful worship experience look like for Change Church, and, and what happens outside of worship, you know, that helps y'all be uh, to to connect the, the dots of of the implications of the spoken word to the living living act of the word.
2: Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we did years ago is we actually came up with a mission statement for the worship gathering for us Um, because we wanted to know what a win looked like for us in terms of the corporate gathering. So we came up with this. In the gathering, this is what we believe we want to see. We want to see God worshiped. We want to see the people encouraged. We want to see the people instructed. We want to see the people informed. We want to see resources raised and we want to see souls added so that's kind of our five-fold purpose for our worship gathering so God to be worshipped so corporate expressions of worship um that is our that's going to be obviously our first priority we want people to be encouraged because we realize and recognize that many of them are coming to the worship services each week um Dealing with unimaginable pain, pressure, stress, and the scriptures in Hebrews encourage instruct us to encourage one another daily. And so we realize that some of them are sitting in suffering seasons right now, and um, they need encouragement. So we want our services to provide that. We want them in, We want them instructed. That we want them taught in God's. We want them taught God's word in a way that they can apply it in their daily lives so that they can properly represent and represent Jesus in culture. So um, that's really important to us. We want, we believe salt of the earth, light of the world is being a missionary to culture that wherever you leave, wherever you, when you leave church, wherever you land, that's your mission field throughout the week. And we want to instruct people that, that to, in a way that empowers them to live lives that represent and represent. Um, Jesus to them. We want them informed, meaning we don't want them just thinking me. We want them thinking we. What We want them informed about what's God doing in our church. Um, what events and activity do we have available for you to help strengthen you, but also that's going to help strengthen our church. Uh, we want resources raised. We want people to be generous to um, God's house so that we're able to carry out the ministry and the mission God's given us and that we want to be intentional about evangelism. And so we want that to, ha- we want um, services that are, so it's, it's different because like, and I know it's a play on semantics, but I'm, you know, the this word is not used as much now, but back in the day, the word seeker sensitive word word that was used and it was called seeker sensitive, but it seems to me that a lot of the approach was really seeker driven. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying for us, we kind of took a more Pauline approach, which is, yeah, we're sensitive to the seeker, not just driven by it. So we believe that's kind of what Paul talks about in Corinthians when he's like, okay, listen, I know you guys are exercising these spiritual gifts. You need to be conscious of the way this is being perceived and interpreted by people who are unbelievers. So there's a consciousness and a sensitivity where we say, we believe we can have a worship service that builds the found and reaches the lost at the same time. So um, that's really important to us from, from our worship. You know, it, it, it doesn't mean that it really affects kind of the preaching and the language we use more than anything else. Um, we believe enthusiasm and passion in worship is evangelistic. We 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 believe that. And so I'm not quite sure how it affects the worship and our music because our music is driven by our theology, but I feel like definitely with the message and the messaging, we really wanna be sensitive of the seeker and when we are outside the worship service when we're we, when we are evaluating it and planning it we're doing that with those goals mind.
0: this podcast is presented to you by the center for congregational health at the center we believe god has called and empowered congregations to change the world For 25 years center consultants coaches and educators have been supporting congregations clergy and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life including training ministers to manage transition helping congregations work through polarizing conflict coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry and assisting congregations in discerning god's call to future missions and ministry Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. That all sounds like super, super easy, right? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Well, um, yeah, I wonder, take a step back. Um, You know, there's pastors that are listening to this conversation and they're trying to find uh, ways to institute and to implement and to cultivate um, characteristics within their congregations that lead to health and to growth. So I wonder what, what makes your congregation healthy and growing?
2: So one, I'd like for us to be more healthy than we are. So I want to be really clear about that. But I think the degree of health that we've seen really um, has been accelerated recently. So I'm going to say over the past four years or so, there's been a great acceleration of health in our church. And it's been um, primarily because there has been an expanding of my view of sanctification that includes the healing of the soul. So for us, leaning into emotional, not just intelligence, right, but emotional health and healing, leaning into that area and including that as a huge part of our spiritual formation has made our community exponentially healthier. People get along better, since hypersensitivity decreases, people recover from grief differently when the tools, when, when they are equipped with the tools to manage the wounds of the soul. So that was a, that was a huge, huge, huge part, I think, of our church that was missing early on because I'm kind of a discipleship guy. I lean heavy in, in that direction my life is the fruit of people who've invested in it and um but i realized no matter um how much information you get or how healthy the relationships are that you have until there is an addressing of the wounds in a person's soul and until a person is equipped with the tools they need um to actually do the lifelong soul maintenance that's required to live well, you're never going to grow to the place of health and even productivity that um, that God wants you to grow to and and I feel like um, this is an area where believers should be rich because this is an area where culture is poor. Um, we We see it success. Achievement, accomplishment do not equal fulfillment. We see it. And um, for us leaning into this area, so practically that means, that has meant um, our change tracks, um, which is like a variation of the growth track. It means for us, we've, we've included soul health and introduction to that into the change track, that's one of our sessions. It's, so with find life, um, find strength, find freedom, find purpose, and the find freedom piece is dealing completely and exclusively with soul health, completely and exclusively. So it introduces them to it, and for many of them, it creates an appetite for them to take advantage of the other groups that we have going on that deal with it more long-term, whether it's emotional health or spirituality or healing for the heart, or um, intensives that we host, host from time to time, or grief recovery. So I would say that by far has been um, the greatest contributor to the degree of health that we have. And um, but we still we still got a long long way to go there too.
0: Well, I think one of the ways that um, we can see the importance of health and what the growth that comes out of that is through your, your new book, um, Relational Intelligence, the people skills you need for the life of purpose you want. This book is an invitation to rethink who we call friends and acquaintances for more impactful relationships. And you wrote, we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to the God who created us. And we owe it to the people who are depending on us to manage this, our, our life well, because the skills needed to manage relationships is a life skill. Walk us through uh, the conception of this book. Uh, what was going on in your life that now was the time to write it?
2: Yeah, so this book is kind of a combination of something that started brewing in my heart about eight years ago. And I had the opposite observ- uh two, two things happening at the same time. Um, one, in my own life, I had an epiphany, And I saw what, ha- what was happening in my own life was also consistent with what I was seeing as a pastor in the lives of people that I served. And that is my greatest joy and my greatest pain was coming from the same place, relationships, period, (laughs) point blank. Um, And I began to see, that almost like opened up my eyes, and I began to see all throughout scripture how significant they were and how much Scripture speaks about giving attention to that particular area because of the impact that it has on your life. Like, for example, in um, Proverbs 13, 20, uh, Solomon says, What with the wise and become wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. And so in some sense he's saying like, hey, listen, you're going to evolve into who you are around. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That this association produces an evolution of some sort. And then Paul in the New Testament says things like, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good character. And to me, this whole idea of don't be deceived or don't be misled seems to suggest that it's possible to be unaware of the impact that certain relationships are having on your life. And so I begin to see this, and I'm like, man, there is no area of our life that's not impacted by relationships spiritually, emotionally, professionally, financially. And so I begin to see this isn't just relationship management, this is life management. But I begin to see that a lot of the resources about relationships were primarily about marriage and parenting. That was it. I couldn't find a lot out there to help me navigate through the waters of my own relational life. So that kind of began the process of me just kind of doing my own research, doing my own study to help me and to help our congregation. And um, I finally got to the point a few ago where I felt like, not that I had mastered it, but I, I, I at least, had gained a a degree of proficiency in it, that I had tested it in my own life and saw the fruit of it. And I decided that maybe this would be a resource that added value to others. And um, that's what led me to writing the book.
0: Many have said that, you know, we're the most connected generation that has ever walked the face of the earth. Um, You know, and, and part of the mechanism of that is that, now over 3.5 billion people are using social media, Um, you know, and as I take a step back and look, you know, from preschool uh, friends to high school friends, college friends, speaking engagements, ministry friends, uh, consulting work that I do for CBF, various church communities that I've served. There's a lot of people I've connected with online, but how many of those couple thousand people am I actually friends with? And so one of the drawbacks to our so-called connectedness on social media is that we've blurred the lines of what these relationships are and what they mean in our lives. You know, I wonder as you, you know, contemplate kind of defining friendships, um you begin to talk about uh, relational intelligence. Um and you talked about it as the ability to discern if someone should be a part of our lives and what place they should occupy and then aligning them accordingly. I wonder if you'll take us a little mm-hmm. deeper there.
2: Yep. Um so It's kind of based on this this idea that, um, one, I think you're right, even with, you know, certain platforms, people that we follow or that follow us get, get the label friends. And so I feel like, you know, kind of the heart of this book is encouraging us to be more intentional about, like you mentioned, defining and aligning our relationships, which is really about this it's not really just about defining and aligning people. I don't wanna come off as I'm saying people are commodities. You know, that's not it, like move people around like the way you move your shoes around on the shelf. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying, people aren't shoes. But I am saying that there are two things that have to be aligned if a person is going to be, um, if if a person is going to live a life of peace and live a life that's aligned with their purpose. And it's this, you've gotta align your expectations. And you got to align your investments. What does that mean? It means that it's possible to give someone the label of a friend that doesn't demonstrate the fruit of a friend. And that is a setup for chronic disappointment. That's failed expectations because you're expecting to receive something from that relationship because you called it that. But just because you call it that doesn't mean it is that. And then in addition to that, we need to define and align our relationships not just so that we know who, uh, what to expect from who but we need to define and rely on our relation align our relationships so we also know where to make certain investments because if we don't our time is a limited resource our energy is a limited resource our attention is a limited resource and without properly defining and aligning our relationships the people that mean the most to us will be the people that get the least from us. And that's really you know what what the book is all about. And you know it's called relational intelligence because th- this is this is what I believe. Intelligence doesn't always transfer from one area to another. So a person can be like financially intelligent but not intelligent when it comes to communication or a person can be intelligent when it comes to communication and not intelligent when it comes to relationships. And so we're using the word relational intelligence to really encourage people to be more intentional when it comes to managing this area of your life right. Because this is what I believe. You can't get life right and get relationships wrong. And you definitely can't get Christianity right and get relationships wrong. Like the love for God is demonstrated and seen in your love for neighbor. This is the part we gotta get right.
0: One of the quotes that really sticks out to me from the book is, "You wrote relational intelligence isn't just about clarity; it's also about courage. It's about summoning up the courage to make the decision that our best interest of the life God wants us to steward, and it is believing that my purpose never comes at the expense of someone else's." Take us a little deeper there, uh, not just into what you mean by this, but how um, how you see this playing out in maybe specifically relationships within the church, which need to be some of the healthiest relationships we have in our life.
2: Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, I'm with you 100% on that. I feel like, um, you know, as it relates to the quote that that you mentioned, that this defining and aligning, it, it, takes, it takes courage. It really does. It, one, it takes courage to, to see that making decisions that are in the best interest of my life is not selfishness, it's stewardship. I am responsible for stewarding the life that God has given me. And when that life is stewarded, according to the virtues, values, and vantage point of Jesus, it does not come at the expense of someone else's. And so I think getting that right is key to actually implementing some of the stuff that we talk about in the book because there are times where it's really difficult as believers period or especially as believers in the context of the church to have to realign relationships because there i think there are times we're operating with this assumption that because we're both followers of Jesus and we're both close to him that means that we're also gonna be extremely close to one another. And if we aren't, um, something is is wrong with that. And so I I do believe that it's possible for relationships to be healthy, but it doesn't mean that our relation, our relational activity is going to be similar. So this is like a simple way (laughs) that, that I say it in the book. I think looking at the way Jesus managed his relationships with the inner circle, the three, the 12 and then the 70 or the other that this is the way i put it everyone should be loved biblically that's without conditions everyone should be valued equally because we are all inherently valuable in the eyes of god but treat it differently because treating everyone right does not mean we treat everyone the same jesus did not he was authentic with everyone but way more transparent with the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Taking them to the Mount of Transfiguration where they get to see him um, express his divinity, but they also get to go with him and sit outside the Garden of Gethsemane where there's this great expression of his humanity. And so there are people that he had a unique relationship with, and it was purposeful. It wasn't just preference, it was purposeful, but he had a unique relationship with than he did all the others. And so I think it's disingenuous to say he treated everyone the same. It's like, no, he didn't, but he did treat everyone right. He loved them biblically. He valued them equally, but he treated them differently. And it, 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 it was, it wasn't just preferential. It was purposeful. And I think it's really, really important to be, to be okay with that.
0: In the book, you do talk a good bit about Jesus as a model for healthy relationships and one of the ways you talked about that was the boundaries he set up, uh, the need to to get away, uh, the need to know the time and the place um, for friendships and the time for for self. So talk talk to us a little bit more about boundaries. And I know this might seem like an odd question, but are are there any limitations with using Jesus as a model of friendship?
2: Yeah. So so to answer your question, yes, there are. Th- I think there's some limitations with using Jesus as as an example of a number of different things. And so I think the idea behind the book is as would be the case probably with anything with Jesus is, is not just like attempting to emulate him in practice, but in principle. And, um, and I say that because there are some things that jesus says about friends and then there are some things that we get to see that jesus actually demonstrates that are consistent with what he says but we don't get to see a lot about at least in the gospels we don't get to see a lot about jesus friendship life we do see that there are people he's friendly with lazarus mary martha Um, I I think it's real clear that that's a a unique type of relationship. They weren't a part of the core or the disciples, but he felt very deeply for them. Um, We could say, we could even argue that there was definitely a different type of relationship that he had with them than he had um, with everyone else that was kind of outside the circle of his disciples. He's weeping when Lazarus is sick and, so, and and when Lazarus passes away. So I, I think I kind of, you know, yeah, I, I lean there in in that sense. But, you know, I, I feel like, let's say, what does he say? He says, no, greater love is no one in this than they will lay down their life for a friend. And so that's something that he says, And I interpret that as, hey, when it comes to friendship, that's someone you're willing to spend your life on. Uh, You give your life to. Like, it's possible for people to get a person's gift, but that doesn't mean just because they got their gift that they get them. And I feel like Jesus kind of makes that distinction with what he says, but then he also demonstrates it. Um, by what he does, you know, he told his disciples, okay, from this point on, I no longer call you servants. I I call you friends that there's now a duality that exists in our relationship. And this has just gone from a mentor mentee type of relationship to something that's a little more complex. And I see you differently. My affection for you is different. And I'm going to make that, I'm going to, I'm going to adjust accordingly. So, like, he even models something. So, I mean, we don't have disciples like that, I mean, in the sense that he had them. I'm sure we're discipling people, but we don't have disciples in the sense that he had them. So, in practice, we cannot, we can't do the same thing, but definitely in principle, we go through the same thing because all of us are going to go through, like, no one will always fit neatly in these categories in this book. And so there are going to be evolutions into one space, evolutions out of another space. There are going to be these weird spaces where I'm not quite sure where everyone fits exactly. And I think with Jesus' statement, what he says and when he says it, it, it models for us what those ebbs and flows in relationships kind of look like. So that, that's kind of the way I I look at it and see it. And that's kind of the the approach we took with the book.
0: It's always struck me that uh, one of the few people labeled a friend of Jesus in the Gospels is Judas, which uh, that's another conversation for another time, maybe. But uh, the Bible says a lot about friendships, especially the book of Proverbs, like uh, Proverbs 27, 14. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. And see, I interpret that as uh, get rid of your friends who are loud and annoying, especially in the morning before you've actually had a cup of coffee um so um what's the most challenging thing the bible has taught you
2: about friendship faithful are the wounds of a friend that's probably the the scripture to me uh that that points to a concept that's that's most challenging faithful are the wounds of a friend that um one way to look at that is one assumption to make about that text and a way to look at it is that there are going to be times where in the context of friendship it it requires which is why i think the friendship relationship is so important it's because most people are going to be most transparent if they're going to be transparent most people are going to be most transparent with their friends so for me as a pastor i know how important friendships are Spiritual formation of the people that I serve, because their friends are going to get a version of them that I'm not going to get, and their friends are going to have a degree of insight into what's going on in their life in a way that I am not, and that is also going to give them an opportunity to speak into that in a way I won't be able to. And so my assumption is that that involves speak some truth telling some hard truths, sometimes it involves confrontation, and sometimes that feels like a wound, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Um, And it means that sometimes I'm gonna have to be on the receiving end of some hard truths, but it also means if I'm being a good friend, I'm gonna have to be on the, the giving end of some hard truths with people that I love. But the way I've kind of framed it, at least in a statement, is friends love you enough to hurt your feelings if they believe it's going to save your future. So to me, that's by far the the most challenging aspect of it for me.
0: I know it's hard to sum this up, maybe in a few words or a couple sentences, but what's your hope for the book?
2: My hope for the book is point blank that people would be resourced with the work that can help them be more intentional about managing one of the most consequential areas of their life more intentional and more intelligent that's that's my hope by far that this would resource them in some way to at minimum think more intentionally about how I define and how I align um, my relationships and how I manage uh, the people that are uh, that are in my life.
0: Well, for those that want to stay connected with Darius, visit his website, DariusDaniels.com. Of course, follow him on social media. Go out and purchase Relational Intelligence wherever books are sold. Darius, thank you for inviting us into a greater intentionality in our lives and our friendships as a way of being more faithful to the purpose God has given
2: us. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for Conversations That Matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support.
0: Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites, fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.